Well, you can uh, turn in your Bibles or your devices uh, to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the epistle reading from Galatians 6, 1 through 10 today, uh, primarily the first three verses there. In our epistle reading last week from Galatians 5, St. Paul enumerated the fruit of the Spirit, and particularly in verses 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, or in the English Standard Version, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's an amazing and aspirational list, but it's just a list if we leave it there. And Paul doesn't want that to happen, so he immediately gives us here in chapter 6 some examples of what it looks like to flesh out a life in which this list becomes practice, a life in the spirit. He signals that right from the beginning, right in verse one where he is a, is, he's addressing uh, you who live by the spirit. In other words, if you call yourself a Christian, if this is in you, this is how you live. And Paul, in doing that, has put his finger on one of the main problems that we face in our day, why we don't and why we can't get along. Sadly, even more and more within the church. Paul is showing us here what it looks like to practically speak the truth in love and to do so because we're seeing ourselves and others truly. And though the phrase speaking the truth in love doesn't appear in this passage. I believe it's woven tightly into the fabric of the whole thing. Because Galatians 6.1 says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And this is where the rubber of Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love, so that we can grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. It's where the rubber of that passage really hits the road. So many people pride themselves at speaking truth nowadays, or at least their version of it. In fact, because of social media, we can scream it at each other virtually all the time. We have become a call-out culture. We're able to, without any real effort or cost, name and claim the wrongs of others very publicly. We're good at quote-unquote truth, especially anonymously, vitriolically, and from a distance. Others like to say, well, I do love. And if the definition of love at some level is being about someone else's ultimate self-expression, there are a lot of people who think at least part of that means not to speak the truth because you do you. But the gospel calls Christians to something different, to substantively engage in and help shape each other's lives by holding truth and love always in tension for their good, for our good, and for the good of the world. We understand from the scriptures that truth without love can't really be truth, and love without truth isn't really love. 
And I think Paul shows us how we start moving toward truth and love and tension right here in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, this is not a suggestion. It's not whenever you feel like it. It's an imperative, otherwise known as a command. Because it's how you fulfill the law of Christ. So what does that mean to bear one another's burdens? What do you have to do? Well, the very first thing we have to do is get close enough to see and understand burdens so that we can begin to share the cost of them. This may seem like an obvious point, but for us, it's something we've got to talk about because it's one of our main obstacles in both our culture and in our churches. You see, Galatians was written to a collection of churches in that region back in the first century, and it was written to a very different context than ours today. Because the early church and the ancient world lived socially, I don't know how to describe it, except socially thick lives. They were deeply rooted in their community, very connected to their neighbors for their well-being. And so they were naturally interdependent. This was the context that Paul was speaking into. And we see in this passage how he assumes that because we read, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Think about that. How is it that someone is caught in sin? The answer is because in that culture, there was no place to hide. Paul assumed they'd know each other's lives. They were observable to those around them how they lived, what they did, and what they said. And so it's not like you're strolling to the marketplace and you just happen to catch someone doing something terrible or you walk into a bedroom and catch someone committing adultery. And what were you doing in that bedroom anyway? It, it could be those things, but contextually, it's not being caught in that way. Like, aha, j'accuse. And you have to wonder at this point why they're speaking French. <laughs> Which, by the way, is the limit of my French. <laughs> it's closer to the idea from Hebrews 12.1 of the things that hinder us and sin that so easily entangles or catches us. Those things that constantly trip us up and that we often don't see. It's actually a blind spot. And the condition required for catching one another's blind spots is to be constant or to be present. It's to be able to observe the lives of one another closely. That's the context into which Paul is writing. But our context today is of implicit autonomy. Most people, they estimate at 80%, don't even know their neighbors the second door down from them. Many, if not most of us, have left our families, and if we ever had them, our deeply rooted communities. We're no longer interdependent, but proudly and profoundly self-sufficient. 
We want to do something different. We want to make a name for ourselves. And so we live under the assumption that all our lives, all of our lives are separate, almost entirely disconnected. My concerns are my concerns, and your concerns are your own, which creates two problems for us in a community. It makes it much easier for us not to be known, and it makes us assume self-sufficiency. In the former, we move away from people, and in the latter, we push people away when they get too close. And it's not some malicious or overt thing we're doing, but just sort of comes out naturally in our underlying and unrelenting cultural assumptions. It is the water that we are swimming in. And as you can imagine, that's a huge issue for those of us in Christ if we're to bear one another's burdens. Because in order for us to do that, we must understand the burden and understand what's happening. The word understand, it's thought, originally comes, and this is not rocket science, uh, from the idea of standing beneath or standing under to grasp an idea, or in this case, a person, so thoroughly that it's if you're literally standing under them. And you can't lift something from a distance unless you're Baby Yoda. <laughs> and sorry, there are not more Mandalorian fans out there. You've got to get close. You've got to get right under the thing to lift and carry. That's what it means to understand. And we can't particularly, and we can't practically take the first step toward bearing another burdens because we're so poor at this idea of being close. And it's not just about physical proximity. What do you know about what's really going on in the lives of your friends or even your family? What kind of questions do you ask one another? E.E. E. Cummings famously said, who asks the more beautiful question gets the, most beautiful, or gets the more beautiful answer. So what kind of questions are you asking one another? What are your conversations like? What, what do you let slide? Even though we might spend time together, which is a good first step, we are, are we actually moving toward one another's hearts? That's the first thing, get close. The second thing is if you get close enough, you'll not only learn to begin to see and understand burdens, but you'll begin to expect them. A burden, in Greek the word baros, which is where we get the term wheelbarrow, is a heavy load in life, on the mind, of the soul that's hard to carry, making it difficult to truly flourish. And if we're honest, our lives are full of them. The underlying reality here, as well as all throughout the scriptures, is that burdens are everywhere. No matter who you are, no matter your circumstance, no matter your background, everyone you know or have ever met is carrying a burden or burdens. 
That's the natural fabric of the world that we live in. And the more physically and emotionally and spiritually proximate we get to others, the more we come to understand that to be human is to be vulnerable. To be human is to be broken. To be human is to bear burdens. That is our shared estate. And one of the most basic realities of our world, no one lives a frictionless life. And while this is increasingly culturally unpopular, the Bible does not prevaricate about what, where that comes from, why it is that human lives are filled with friction. And it's not because of random circumstance. It's not because of fate. It's not because you have bad luck or because it's all your fault. Instead, the Bible tells us that it's brokenness in our lives and in the world due to sin. Let me explain. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga calls sin the vandalism of shalom. He says God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom. It breaks the peace that he intends because it interferes with the way things ought to be. St. Paul describes all of life on this side of eternity in 2 Corinthians 5.4, saying, for while we are in this tent, in other words, and it kind of actually feels like I'm wearing a tent, um, as long as we live, by the way, do you know what these vestments mean to God? Nothing. Nothing. They mean something to me, though. I'll tell you about it some other time. As long as we're in this tent, as long as we live in this body, we groan and we are burdened. That's the world we live in. We all feel the burden of this sin and brokenness in our lives. Some have had the experience of addiction, maybe in the past, maybe now, but it's weighing you down. Things you've done in the past and still carry today. Things you carry that have been done to you, anxieties, worries, frustrations, stress. These are all groans and burdens that we carry. And the thing is, we often don't see them very clearly because we've been sold the idea that everything's supposed to be great. We're supposed to always be living our best life now. And it makes us believe that difficulty is unnatural, and therefore we don't want to see burdens. We don't want to talk about them. We don't want to move toward them. But the idea that difficulty is unnatural is a delusion. Because the Bible makes no delusions about the, re the realities of the brokenness and difficulties in this life. And even in this passage, it points to it. Again, in verse 1, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are walking in the Spirit should restore them gently. But be careful so that you don't fall into sin either. It's a subtle point, but it's an understanding that no one, including you, is beyond the reach of sin. No one, including you, is stronger than that. But in fact, and by the way, me as well, not just you, but in fact, we are all weak and we are all susceptible to falling to brokenness and sin. And that's just a cold, hard reality for, for a community of believers. But it's also a gift because it levels the playing field. 
That proper view of yourself and others becomes the starting point for you to see that when you get close enough, you expect to see burdens everywhere. And when this becomes the new lens through which you see every single person here, including yourself, it will lead to a very different type of relationship or conversation. Because now you begin to relate to one another with the assumption that everyone, including you, is bearing burdens and that it will allow you to draw closer to others and allow others to draw closer to you. And it's only when we get close and have a proper sense of ourselves that we can begin to bear burdens, to follow that command. All those other things were preconditions, the things we must do, we must understand first so that we can begin to obey this command. Because it's costly. You don't bear a burden without sharing the cost. Jonathan Edwards, in his book Christian Charity, says this about this passage. In many cases, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. We should be willing to suffer with our neighbor and take part of his burdens on ourselves. Otherwise, how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Very simply, he's saying that the phrase literally indicates that the way that you bear another burdens is by taking the weight and the load that they're carrying and you let it fall on you. That you have to bear a cost. There's no other way. No other way to do it if you want to bring relief to the other person. And the greatest cost for us to bear is not necessarily just giving a little of our most abundant resources. For some of us, that's money. For some of us, that's time. For some of us, that's strength and effort. But rather, it is the long and patient obedience, energy, and effort that's required for us to put our masks down, for us to make one another feel known, encouraged, cared for, and walked with to recognize that burdens are everywhere and that it's good to bring them into light within this community. That's the greater cost for us. So who must you be to do all this? I mean, to be that remarkable person who will see someone caught in a sin and be bold enough to bring it to the light and yet will not lead with judgment and condemnation and harshness, but instead restores them, brings them back into fullness gently. It's someone who doesn't feel superior when they're bearing the burden of a friend who's struggling, who's not looking down, but instead understands their own weakness and their own brokenness. It's someone who's strong enough to help carry a load and yet beautifully weak enough to see their own need. What kind of person is that? It's the kind of person who speaks the truth in love because they fully live into the beautiful tension of life in Jesus. And it's this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, and yet, at the same time, we are more loved 
and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Apart from the grace of Christ, there is no health in us. We just read that in the collect that we read today. We have no untarnished value. We have no goodness that's purely good. And yet, at the very same time, to him, we are so loved, we are so beautiful that he wanted to come and die to bring us back into relationship with him. Oh, he had to die for us. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But he also wanted to die for us. And those two things together slam the lowness and the highness of ourselves together. He had to end. He wanted to. In Jesus, the lowliness of our estate and the loftiness of our value are held perfectly in tension, which allows us to hold truth and love in tension. The only person in the world that's ever held truth and love perfectly in tension is Jesus. And so, though you will never do it perfectly, when you're in him, living by his spirit, you can do the very same kind of thing in him. Because in Jesus, we all have access to the filling of the Holy Spirit, which means that we all have the supernatural in us. In every believer, the spirit lives and is at work, and it's not from this world. In fact, it can't be done that way. It must be done of the spirit. We must be people who have experienced the supernatural love of Christ first. He's borne our burden out of his love for us. How does he do it? Well, we see that throughout, all throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons why we, we generally speaking, and always have read the gospel from the middle of the room. We stopped doing that during COVID, but have, are committed to starting that again, where we can breathe on you, I guess. Um, and it, it's, it's because he came among us. He, he what came near us. He doesn't keep his distance. And even though we've wanted to handle our own lives and deal with our own concerns and be self-sufficient, instead Jesus leaves his heavenly throne and comes close to be so near to us where the God of the universe comes and takes on flesh to be born into burden, to experience everything we experience here in this broken, burdened world. We read in Hebrews 4, 15, and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet as we are, as we are, yet he did not sin. He comes so close to us, but not just to understand us, just to stand close. He doesn't come just to stand under us. But what he does is he comes to stand in for us. He doesn't just stand in our shoes. He stands as if he is us when he becomes our burden. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And lastly, of course, he bears a tremendous cost. He takes the full weight of our burden the full weight of our guilt and all that has ever made us groan and burdened in this world and it's cast on him on the cross. He pays the full price for all our burdens and for all, once and for all. 
so that he can say to us finally, come, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Thanks be to God.